thanks for having me, Jacob. I think uh, I'd like to, to offer a bit more of a formal introduction to you today, um, principally being a founder of life itself and um, a pioneer at the edge of research and um, communities of, of intention and practice and recently the author of Collective Wisdom in the West, Beyond the Shadows of Enlightenment with Perspectiva. So, yeah, I haven't mentioned your cognitive science PhD or any of the other things that you've done, but I think there's probably far too many interesting connections between yeah. both of our interests <laughs> for us to possibly comprehensively explore today. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I think the other might thing might be that I, I do um, run a kind of neuroscience and contemplative dialogues uh, with the monks at Plum Village to help to organize those, uh, you know, and um, yeah, yeah, sort of build a conversation around that with, with, with some of the Dhamma teachers at, at Plum Village. Mm. Brothers Fak Lin, Fak Lu in particular are very active in that. But yeah, that's, those are, you know, I guess some of the major connections. We just finished a neuroscience retreat, so I have to mention that. People uh -huh. can go and look at the the videos uh, from pretty soon of, of um, you know, some interviews with David Sloan Wilson and some of the monks and uh, uh, Ruth Lanius, who's a uh, expert in, in trauma, sort of the neuroscience of trauma. We interviewed her, and so there's, there's a bunch of different, really good interviews with monastics and scientists that just um, just got put up as well. Awesome. Yeah, I'm, I'm interested. I mean, maybe this is a good, we can sort of set off from here and somehow it will lead us into the themes um, that you've been exploring in your book and elsewhere. Um, but I, I wonder what it is about being at the intersection of neuroscience and, you know, the effects and the palpable shifts that are possible um, with spiritual practice, uh, with meditative practice in particular, like what is it for you that you feel has sort of drawn you to be so close to that? What's the sort of aliveness of it? Oh, sure. Yeah, I mean, um, I'm kind of, by nature, inquisitive and have a kind of just intellectual bent. My, my background really is I kind of sometime as a teenager, I decided I wanted to understand social reality. I was going to do whatever I needed to do to understand that. I always loved history and economics. I wanted to understand society and really help to make a, a better one. Um, and so I was very into Jiddu Krishnamurti and um, also social science. And I kind of wanted to bring those together. And I also wanted to understand 
um, economics. So, you know, my whole life has been kind of like trying to figure out social science, but also having this really deep intuition that when I listen to Buddhists and mystics from India, you know, and, and, and you know, the, the Asian traditions, we can say like Krishnamurti, um, Says, yeah, that's there's just something about that when I listen to Foucault or something like that. Well, it's interesting, but I could kind of easily understand it quickly. But when I first heard Krishnamurti, I was just like, yeah, he's really right about something, but it's profound. Like, I don't really understand it. I kind of just know that he's right. And I never would have thought of that, that uh, you know, some of the things that he said. And so I, I always felt that we needed to break through the, there's a kind of wall in our intellectual traditions that doesn't allow in the non, you know, the, the you know, ultimate dimension as we'd say in, in Buddhism or, you know, actuality was Krishnamurti's term, this phrase. Uh, but I consider myself as essentially like, I, I like to, I sort of was a scientist. I'm maybe more identified with contemplative practice now, or at least as much. But within within the contemplative community, I'm kind of a specialist in ideas, right? Like the real measure of realization is kind of, you know, is your total centeredness. And there's people who are better meditation teachers than I am, um, but. My specialization is like you know, one of the, the thinking, the thinking guys in in, in uh, you know, the contemplative community who can kind of communicate and, and interact with the world of ideas, uh, and you know, and kind of help to direct people towards the, the the people who are better teachers than I am. You know, at this stage, anyways, of my my practice, and I think that's really you know, it's just a continuation of what I'm interested in. Um, I think science, how can you say, you know, there's, there's certain relative dimension truths, like um, life is, has a lot of suffering, you know, like the Four Noble Truths of, of Buddhism, um, and that a lot of our suffering tends to come from psychological, we call attachments or heavily held expectations might be a, a better word for some people because, uh, uh, you know, that we can get free of those and that there's kind of a path, right? Those are intellectual statements that people can kind of grasp. So we always say that those types of things are rafts to cross to the other shore. Mm. I think science can help people grasp some of those rafts better, or we can make modern rafts. Uh, we can make, you know, use, it's almost like high tech rafts with, you know, contemporary technology, though you won't get more than a raft, right? We, we can't ever pretend that we're going to get people to the other shore with science. We can help that people, especially in this culture, understand the rafts that the ancient ancestors have already provided better. Uh, and so, you know, I think that's kind of an ambition and also how those rafts might relate to some of the things that we're experiencing now as far as our overall, um, you know, dumpster fire of a, 
political and environmental situation. So that's kind of you know what I what I what I try to spend my time doing as much as possible. Yeah, I, I mean that dumpster fire. I mean the last few days for me has sort of been a feeling of that that fire is heating up somehow um and of course you know we've been in perennial states of crises in many different ways for years now you know um but beginning to recognize that there is patterns and trends and um some of the possible futures of those patterns and trends uh really don't look good for um the sustainability of our civilization. Um, and by that, I mean both global human civilization in relationship to the biosphere and the plants and the air um, and all of that stuff. But I also mean Western civilization as well. Um, freedom to, you know, that this ephemeral thing that we have that we don't quite see, but we only see it in comparison to um, when it's been taken away. Um, and so, yeah, both of those things have been very alive for me. And I think we, we talked about this once before, but sort of very early on in that, for me, I saw Sam Harris as kind of somebody who was doing a kind of bridging um, that was very radical at that time. And, you know, without connecting his work with your work too much, I see you as, as also doing a kind of bridging um, that's very necessary for this moment in time because we're in a scientific paradigm. We're in a scientist kind of paradigm. Um, mm -hmm. Or really to just recognize that we're in perhaps a paradigm is too limited but we are in a um a matrix of thought and institutions and technologies and the, i think the first thing to, to to do is realize that and to realize that we have to of course slow down <laughs> yeah been right at the heart of what i've been exploring with sense base but i also feel it's you know somehow the simple core of some of the the buddhist practice as well yeah absolutely i mean um there's all sorts i mean in buddhism i mean that's kind of my background my emphasis is, is zen uh, which is a form of mahayana buddhism and as we all know, Buddhism has reinvented itself uh, a number of times. Um, you know, Western Buddhism is pretty young. So it's still like the, the Dhamma is not, I mean, there's kind of, how do you say, there's a, a sort of the Mahayana and Theravada schools, right? And just, you know, quickly, it's like you could look at the Buddha taught a certain way or a certain hit a certain dhamma and you could see that as kind of the way to teach or you could see it as the way that he happened to teach or find skillful to teach ancient indians 
Uh, and Zen comes from, you know, a, a tradition of, okay, there's another way of, of teaching. And particularly, it was actually after um, Buddhism had become quite scholastic. Uh, and so these kind of riddles and mm. uh, puzzles and koans of Zen were, were actually to get around a scholasticism that had accumulated around Buddhist practice, right? This kind of reification of the metaphor of the path into this kind of um, idea, you know, that people were engaging with uh, rather than the direct reality that, you know, we, you would do with when you, you would engage with during following the breath, right? As soon as you get away from, from practice, you kind of start losing that connection. Um, and the more you get attached to the ideas, the more, you know, you, you feel those are your vehicle by which uh, you can understand reality and attain insight, uh, then you start losing it, right? Uh, and, and I think Zen was a response to scholasticism and now Western kind of in this Western culture, we need another response. Um, and so that's kind of, like, I would say like, it's almost like science is like the reincarnation of the modern times like the Buddha had to teach speak in terms of reincarnation because Indians understood reincarnation and today's Dhamma for this culture should speak in science because it's speaking to people who understand science and it's actually not a, a you know it's quite a good language to teach the, the, the you know to get things across as far as they can be gotten, gotten across it's just um at the same time, you have to undermine scientism, right? That this idea that that science can give us all the answers, right? That's that's the the, the hard bit. But I, you know, I think that can be done, and so that's kind of part of the challenge is realizing that the intellect can only do so much, and all that science will ever be able to do is take us towards the edge of what the intellect can do, uh, and then there's practice and, you know, direct realization, uh, which is beyond that. And that's, you know, that will never be taken over by science. It just simply can't. <laughs> no, I don't think it can. Um, <laughs> yeah. Um, that's really interesting. Um, just feeling like you're kind of, yeah, I'm learning some very useful, um, sort of connectors in my map um, between those different Buddhist traditions and um, recognizing in the process that I'm very much a student of, um, you know, that Western first generation, I guess, of like um, a lot of guys in the 50s and 60s who did or didn't do acid and then went to India and Asia, uh, Joseph Goldstein, and Jack Kornfeld and Alan Watts um, and, you know, Sam Harris being sort of a, a further generation after that. But those are the people that I have learned from. I haven't mm -hmm. spent any time in Tibet or India or with many people in robes. And 
Um, I did briefly spend some time with the London Buddhist center and dabbled in community there, but um, yeah, find myself charting my own path that sort of dips in and out of different things and Yeah, I find myself losing my train of thought. It's such an esoteric mm. journey to go on. Yeah, well, you know, it's just practice, you know, that's always, I think it's always like if one starts to find abstraction that things feel abstract and it's just good to get back to <laughs> back to following your breath as well because uh of you know abstraction is kind of like the sensation of an ungrounded thought to um you know use some cognitive science right that um our you know ideas what we call talk about is just ideas are the ideas that we're conscious of as ideas because they feel abstract you know the computer is an idea you know to some degree i have a, a jacob concept and it feels really grounded to me so you know it's, it's an embodied concept and our most useful ones are the ones that work with our perceptual system that we're creating a perceptual spatial reality with and, and those are very potent uh and and when uh, you get the feeling of abstraction. What it means is you, you, your concept isn't isn't grounded. Uh, you're not. Your mind isn't managing to find a direct experience. You know, for example, attachment for a lot of people. It's a bit like maybe don't you know if you don't meditate, don't spend a lot of time thinking about attachment as the end of suffering because you can hold attachment kind of the wrong way. And um, that's a good route to alienation because people might think, you know, if you don't, you don't kind of practice letting go and have a, a, a way of grounding that, then um, you can end up using, well, I have an attachment as the source of suffering. So a way of kind of like, okay, I might want to get away from attachment. Right, and so you, you, if it, if it feels abstract, then just let it go. You know, just, just you know, don't don't worry about it and get back to 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 practice and maybe you know, the the first noble truth that uh, life is suffering is part of life. If you kind of just um, watch your your <laughs> your suffering, <laughs> then. Uh, the, the teaching started to have a, a way of becoming less esoteric feeling. You know? I think that's, that's always my approach to stay away from being esoteric. It's just, you know, watch what gives me grief and pain in life. Yeah, I'm very much, I very much resonate with that and um, returning to the imminent um you know without getting too uh scientific about what that imminent reality is that's sort of the place i'm looking to um hang out <laughs> so however much i you know go very deeply in or out depending on what way you want to look at it um and with that there's necessarily a letting go of 
this experience of reality in order to sort of get into a more heart expanded non-self reality um i think that that surrender or that letting go is ultimately a letting go into the imminent reality as such so you end up loving people more yeah rather than cutting off from um emotions or using meditation as a um trauma coping tool um which i certainly recognize myself as having done in the past so well that's all right you know i mean it's it's they always say take refuge in the, the Buddha, the Dhamma, the Sangha, which is just like your spiritual ancestors, um, the teachings they left, and your spiritual friends, um, and kind of like, it's sort of natural to just cope a little bit. It's just like, uh, you know, we don't want to hang out there forever, right? It's, I think that's kind of the, the thing is that it's, it's it's fine to take refuge or, or um, in some ways get away from things in meditation, but um, that also to be with, you know, when you bring your meditation, meditative energy to, you know, regular life and, and start watching yourself, then, you know, I mean, that's kind of like the, the book, um, that you mentioned the intro, uh, you know, I, I like, I feel like drawn to talk about attachment a little bit beforehand because I noticed when we start talking about attachment that a lot of people do kind of end up holding it the wrong way. Um, and so it's a bit like, um, how do we say, so it's like living in opposition um, that, that if, if you know, so the environmental movement. Okay, we we don't like we decide what growth is a bit of an issue. So anti-growth, um, you know, we we or technology or progress is an issue. So we, you know, the myth of progress is kind of seduced us. So we we want no technology, right? And so you kind of you're not free from the thing. It's not freedom it's opposition and there's a way of of holding the idea of attachment that okay well i noticed that attachment is a source of suffering and i noticed that i have attachment so what i want to do is kind of get out of the way that's just more imprisonment from attachments right it's more or imprisonment by another attachment it's just it's like teenage rebellion or anything else it's kind of this, the natural movement of the mind and then letting go and finding distance from the attachments or being, you know, not making what you want really separate from the rest of life to just hold it. It's like, okay, I'm holding on to that, notice it and see what happens when um, you really notice that you're holding on to something maybe that's precarious, maybe that doesn't, um, have a certain integrity and just see what happens, you know? And I think that's what I, um, 
like to do with my work is kind of, especially that book is, um, it's a bit like, well, let's just get, become a little bit more aware of, of what our cultural suffering is. So, you know, what the, the, the Dhamma of, of the, the West right now would be a bit like, well, well, you know, there seems to be a lot of suffering uh, around here, uh, as you say, precarious future. Um, where did that come from? Um, and kind of the point of the book is like, uh, the enlightenment is a pretty grandiose term uh, for point in history, right? And so that might be a place to look for why we're in, you know, what some people call a meta crisis. It's that uh, there was a period of our history where we decided that we were enlightened. And, you know, that sounds like an idea that we're attached to. And the book isn't, let's not be enlightened. It's, let's, get in touch with those attachments, you know, that we've required and see what happens, you know, basically. Yeah, this is a really interesting terrain, I feel. This is almost two, um, two elements that I'm holding here is like uh, attachment in relationship to um, pain or to uh, trauma, or to disconnection from life, which obviously can be, you know, personalized and localized to the individual self and childhood, but it is also rooted within the ancestors and the ancestral soil. So what happened in the West during the 20th century was a profound explosion of psychic shadow, trauma, violence, shock. Um, and the context in which that occurred was not one with a really richly developed understanding of, of integrating all of this stuff. So that stuff's gone into the soil and, um, how far down we want to look in the soil is perhaps one of the questions around the meaning crisis is like, well, do we look at the horror of the 20th century or is it really further down to the enlightenment perhaps? Or, you know, some people want to go back to the origin of written language. Um, and I think all of these are true in a meaningful sense. So that was the pain part. And then we have like the ideas, the attachment to ideas. Um, I'm, I think part of the attachment is that the that it um, like we almost think that there is just ideas, and we don't account for ways of knowing or ep sort of epistemic categorical assumptions about the way things are that we're also attached to. So the idea of the mind as the brain in the head as the captain of the body. This right. one of those assumptions that we've just yeah. been living out of and now is very gradually starting to 
be peeled away and we're realizing, oh, you know, I'm not just up here. I'm centered here. I'm centered down here. There's a brain in the gut. There's a, you know, the whole integrated being. Um, so maybe we can hone in a little bit on some of these blind spots of the West and I'm very interested in the role that you um, place of like rebalancing rationality with not knowing and mystery. And yeah, I know you're into the left brain, right brain and the neuroscience of this. So please fire away. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I go with what we've been um, kind of discussing before, dialoguing about before, it's just that, um, okay, the, a lot of what we're going through right now and what we went through in the 20th century was um, a lot having to do with um, the myth of progress, which was kind of that there's a rational way of understanding things. Um, science can give us the answers. Uh, in particular, the West was perfecting science and was this kind of more advanced society. It's almost entitled to rule the rest of the world. Uh, you know, I mean, dawn of the 20th century, Western countries essentially had, had collectively had this empire that you know, in one way or another, control most of the world. Um, and, um, and, you know, that is kind of, well, it's the way it, it should be because we have a rational system, right? That was the idea. Um, that's um, obviously, you know, hubristic and people have noticed that and we've, spent a lot of time talking about say deconstruction, right? So that there's a, there's a mirror, there's a, things that we talk about as ideas, as you know, we discussed kind of, which are the ungrounded concepts. And then there's the created reality, which we call, you know, maybe constructions to use a term that is, goes even, you know, back to Piaget, we talk about deconstruction, Derrida, but there's a whole school of, of psychology um, that are constructivists that would say that like, look, you're actually, these ideas are literally creating your embodied experience of reality, You've woven them into your waking reality. Um, and those, you know, so the things that you think are just concrete things are also ideas or they're these kind of hybrid, you know, uh, weaving of sensory experience shaped, uh, morphed into a particular form uh, by your ideas, right? And so, you know, because we identify with the brain, um, your, your head probably is over-present in, uh, in your personal construction of yourself. Like if your actual embodied experience of yourself has a, maybe a lot of head in it, and many Westerners report this, right? That as opposed to people who thought the center of the self was in the heart in, in, in ancient cultures like Egypt would experience a lot more torsos. They're actually 
kind of their their moment to moment experience of themselves had a different construction. There's you know nerves that are and sensory input that are underlying that, but they feel they felt they created a different sort of percept out of it with their ideas, right? And so that's just one example. Um, but I think um, you know it's this idea of okay, some of the ways that we're constructing things might be really problematic, right? Um, and I think um, my strategy with the, the book and just what I'm working on now is like, well, let's, because we're not very good at that, um, because the idea is a bit like you have to go into your sensed reality, sense your attachments, right? To, that's a, a grasping that's always involved. There's always a grasping involved with kind of seeing the world a certain way. You're the, the kind of sense of self that you have as a, as a construction, which is a, a, a making of a thing out of perception, you know? Um, and that is kind of what we're referring to with grasping and, and letting go is of, of that is a sense that you have when you step back. Sometimes, you know, if you people meditate, they will kind of spontaneously notice sometimes they have a very, suddenly a very different experience of their body that has more space in it for more of their their body right suddenly your shoulders are there suddenly you know your legs are there suddenly you know when you're following your breath and you're feeling it go um, throughout the body and that that there's this kind of ripple uh and then suddenly there's a there's a different sense of of self that kind of spontaneously emerges Right, and so that's a kind of displacement or a way of seeing seeing the body in a, a way that's different from the way we usually construct it. Right, and and the idea of kind of say deconstruction was a bit like, well, we could we need to get under our ideas. Um, my feeling is that it's a bit of a of a skill, like embodied. It, it, it ends, ends up when you talk to most people who do kind of deconstruction, it, it, it feels very still like intellectual, um, like quite like one doesn't get the impression that um, really we're getting past our, our you know, ideas. It's a bit like psychoanalysis, right? Where many people who go into some forms of, of psychoanalysis or therapy end up having a lot of statements about themselves um, and kind of can tell you all about their issues, but they don't change the way that they are very much. They don't manage to let go of, of their fear of their particular ego, uh, you know, need to be important, inflated sense of importance, you know, right? You have to actually go into your inflated sense of importance and see. I'm going to really feel how you know overly important I am. Explore, you know, my kind of thoughts I'm ashamed of. See, you know, that those are a bit ridiculous uh, about how important my personal work is. And then um, when you do that, I really do it and and see how kind of 
it conflicts with things and you know, your self-importance tends to get spontaneously less, um, yeah, less grandiose, less inflated. Uh, and, and, and so, you know, it's a bit of like, that's the kind of work that we need to do with some of our big ideas from the past. Um, and so I, I focused on rationality, individuality, um, secularity and then equality controversially at the end. Um, but I think that's going back to rationality. The reason why we're so bad at that is because we're stuck in rationality. The way to get out of bad behaviors is to have rational arguments that those are don't work. So because reason is all important and what you need is rational arguments that then you can't get out of that, right? If you take that first leap, you're stuck, right? So that's the first one that you have to get a hold of is delusions about rationality and how much it's worth to have a good idea or know something. Yeah, I'm, I'm feeling like what, what we're doing right now, there's an interesting like weaving up and down going on between the importance of somatic experience and breath. And as you're talking about breath, I'm becoming more aware of breath. And then that's actually kind of shifting the tenor of my listening or the conversation. Um, and then up to the philosophical and idea and these key ideas that are from the enlightenment that are somehow um, becoming the animating forces of today, but also realizing that those, um, you know, whenever you have a slogan or a very simple meme um, that is not connected with lived experience, then really, it's not going to be an effective judge of character. What, you know, if I, my identifying as an anti-fascist does not tell you a great deal about what I am for. It mm -hmm. merely tells you that I am strongly against something. Um, and of course, every authoritarian movement history of the world has been strongly against something so um yeah there's a there's a whole element of behavior in the neurosphere and the conversation in the mimetic landscape that feels like an adolescent process and somehow like coming back to the development of self is a good way of understanding what's going on. Um, and I know because I went from being Christian to agnostic to pretty strongly atheist. And the thing that convinced me of it was rational argument. Um, and the thing that shifted me out of it was not really rational argument. It was more like psychedelic experience. Mm. Something that is not accounted for in that whole understanding. And 
further to that, you know, um, having, having had an experience that opens up possibility, then beginning to get some of these practices going. Mm. movement practice get some breath and meditation um you know begin to listen for listen for something that's uniquely calling to you Mm. an inquiry of some kind a curiosity um and to follow that and whenever you do follow that it will take you beyond yourself and probably beyond um, this mimetic tribe, this, you know, in-group speak, and you might find, oh, I'm connected with people who actually, um, are going to reject me if I stop speaking the same linguistic thing. We're all in agreement. We all agree. Right. Right. But there's so much, um, unresolved psychic material i think somehow there um and yeah i mean as i said before this i've been getting very into existential risk and various geopolitical things for the last week with my girlfriend so we've this question of you know, the, the destabilization of the West um, has been feeling very palpably alive. Mm. <laughs> the rise of China combined with this sort of very inward-looking civil unrest. Um, so there's some, real, there's some real shit going on. There's some real <laughs> consequences to yeah. ideas, whether you're looking at Evergreen State College and, you know, how that maps onto universities or you're looking at the city of Portland having riots for 120 days. What are the the kind of spaces that are created when the flag of being against the state or against capitalism or against racism what comes in the wake of that, we don't know, but we have good indications that it very quickly turns into a playing out of all that material and a power struggle and um, not a very free kind of um, place at all. Right. It's a very, well, there's a lot of psychological violence that comes with rationality. I think it's, you know, what we get because there's a, there's a right way, right? As soon as you get into rationality as the guide to everything, then there's a path. That's what's so seductive about it. Well, there's, there's kind of a path to, even you can say salvation or a just society. And, um, you know, and, and so equal individuals is kind of the, the moral, you know, the framework, the moral infrastructure uh, and sort of ideological infrastructure through which we've tried, you know, sort of almost tried to solve the problem of justice, right? And, and 
when you solve a problem with you know humans, you know you decide you have the solution. Psychological violence is inevitable, right? And that's you know more or less what um, you know I spend a, a large part of the book arguing is that like it's just we've been trying to turn the world into you know a problem with a solution or life into 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 a problem with a solution. That's what happens with problematizing? Um, that's a movement that you can get in touch with again. You know, that we can kind of just feel that there is something that it feels like to be certain and in control. And oh, does it feel good? It feels great to be certain and in control, you know? Um, I mean, it feels people, why they loved computers at the beginning, you know, why, you know, sort of applications are addictive. You just kind of, you know, type the keys, type the keys, type the keys, and things happen. And then you get used to that, right? The types of, of pleasure that comes from control um, tends to go away when you get used to it. This is kind of like the, you know, the, the, um, the, uh, the hamster wheel, right? The, that we always talk, the, the, you know, the hedonistic hamster wheel, right? That because once you've sort of started, gotten used to a certain pleasure, then it it goes, it starts to, to go away, um, right? But then when your computer doesn't work, you know how you're attached you are to it because you freak out because you have such heavy expectations it's supposed to work exactly some way when it starts doing anything a little bit wrong, you know, immediately the impulse to kind of bang on the keys or, or something like that, right? And it's a bit like society as a whole has gotten to be a bit more like that kind of that type of feel that we kind of expect things to just work, uh, and and we've been constructing these you know systems to make things work like they're supposed to, and essentially you know yeah it's very you know of course. Uh, there's a, a deep morality um, behind um, everything that goes on, you know, under the name of, of you know, wokeism or whatever. You know, I don't want to kind of delve into that term or whatever, but people kind of know what I'm talking about. Like, there's obviously like our fundamentally pro-social ability for love is also part of that, but right alongside that there's kind of ego right in the mind the intellectual mind the the ego is a kind of a construction of the self right it's, it's an attachment it's the kind of construction of yourself that you are attached to uh and being right uh morally is a big uh part of that of you know what egos do um they're Correct, you know, people people like to be right. Uh, their ego, our egos, like to be right. Um, being you and I, that we experience, you know, that and that mystics experience, right? That there is a non-separation, right? Not only are we kind of equal, but we're the same, right? This is like equal in the eyes of God, right? Is that really this is like a metaphor that we're all children? of God, you know, none of us is better or worse in God's eyes, but rather um, 
equally sacred, right? Our consciousness, our, our experiences are equally sacred, you know, we're equally human. Uh, and then there's kind of surface equalities, which are, well, what does it look like if you have that kind of saintly perspective? There's some equalities in the way that we could be treated that you can, that are sort of metrics. Right, so like equal rights. It's true, you know, that, you know, if you equally care about everybody, then you should have equal rights. And then, you know, equal outcomes, perhaps equal opportunities, under which I'd kind of talk about a lot of the stuff that like equity or the conversation about equity is really like deep equality of opportunities that, you know, equality of opportunity is not handing somebody the same book you know, that's obviously kind of ridiculous. Like, oh, everybody gets the same book. So they had an equal opportunity to learn. Like, well, no, it's like making up for inequalities in the family life, in you know, the environment that people grew up in, et cetera, and bringing it so that there's kind of a flat playing field um, is kind of the, the, you know, the fundamentals there. Um, and again, it's, you know, to get back to that idea, it's not be in opposition of that. Like, oh, that's so stupid, throw it away. It's just, well, you know, those are some really potent ideas for public policy that we should be in touch with, but we should also be in touch with how we're using them. Like, what does it feel like to believe that? And what does it feel like to be, and what is it like to be really attached to those ideas delivering social justice? And what actually happens when we are in that state, right? And, you know, all those ideas start to sound like a, a route to the promised land, um, but are they? You know, that's the question. And, 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 and if they were erupts in the promised land, maybe they would be justified. There's a contradiction there because the promised land is, you know, the route of a promised land, the route to which is cruel, is just no longer a promised land, right? So, so it's, it's just this fundamental contradiction that we're not quite quite clocking, mainly because we're so identified with um, the route. And I think at some level know that it's not working. So that the more identified you are with path or, or, or pursuit, the more you kind of resist um, evidence that that what you're what you're doing isn't isn't really working, right? Or that it might not work. And I think that's, you know, that's kind of the dynamics of it. And, um, yeah, it's really, it's the same, you know, it's a practice thing, really, to just get in touch with that, the way things are. It's very understandable that people would get attached to that. It doesn't make them stupid. It doesn't make them, you know, lesser human beings, you know. Um, it's just, that's the way we are with everything and, and, you know, we're all quite infected with, you know, with grasping, I would call it the grasping disease, you know, that's like whiteness, you know, 
what the Europeans have brought to the world is this, is this grasping disease and the kind of everything we've been talking about is, is you know, a bit of the grasping disease. And, and that is kind of the essence of, you know, what we really are, I think, gesturing towards when we talk about, you know, whiteness as a, as a problem in the world or anything like that. Something, something tells me that that particular um, label is not going to age very well. In a few, I think in a few decades or a century, looking back, it's going to be, um, it's going to feel quite rudimentary. Oh, which one? Whiteness. Whiteness, yeah. Yeah. Well, it's already, it's not very good. I mean, because, you know, it's alienating to a lot of people. <laughs> Because, you know, I mean, basically equating whiteness with, with privilege in the way that's done, obviously, there's a lot of tr people who are voting for Trump because they feel that, I mean, it, which is true, it's just, you know, American society intentionally just decided it didn't matter, you know, kind of people who don't have more than a high school education and who have blue collar jobs. I mean, they've just been ditched by it the government of the United States, right? Um, and so um, language that makes it, it sound like to them that they have these you know, enormous privileges um, is very alienating. Uh, and they are, you know, now essentially Donald Trump campaigned against when he said, we love to, to argue with them, don't we? I mean, well, he's, he's talking about people who, yeah, uncritically equate, um, you know, I'd say being a white male with something great and white being white with something that's really um, sort of wonderful and, and um, you have an easy life. Um, and, and, you know, that's to say, I say that as somebody like totally fits me, you know, I, you know, I, I got a good university education. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I don't find it problematic. People tell me I'm privileged. Yeah, yeah I am, you know, absolutely. I've been privileged. Uh, I've been very lucky, but at the same time, I don't think that language is the most skillful language as far as like, you know, building a better politics. It doesn't fit a lot of other people as, as well as it fits me. Yeah, I, I think those, these words, they all connect with reality in some way. There's, there's some truth to those maps. Um, and there's, you know, something legitimately to be concerned about that all of them somehow point towards um, that the problem becomes almost the univocality of maps. Um, just learning that one map and being like, I've got it. Um, and that, that attachment to knowing that you described. And if you just bring it back to relationship, you know, anybody who's had a 
parent or someone they're in a relationship with that always knew what always knew that person's a really difficult person to to be in relationship with because um because the because the thing that blocks them from entering into not knowing is something in here something that's you know some trauma some um it's almost the paradox of, of disconnection tends to create more attachment to um, a certain view of the way things are. And I, I welcome that map, but I also welcome a multiplicity of other maps. Mm-hmm. You know, what do these things mean? What does privilege mean? Um, you know, we were talking before about how I've been really realizing how much working class attitudes around possibility and opportunity and, and money was so quietly entrenched in the background for me. Um, and just recognizing how disempowered my ancestors have been. <laughs> You know, the people who were for king and country and probably pro-empire and all of that stuff were living in a system of control. Uh, Working class identity is a system of, really a system of control. And, um, you know, attitudes around gender and class and all of these things. So, and in equal time, a lot of people really spouting off about their own privilege or other people's privilege suffering greatly in their mental health and Mm -hmm. anxiety. Um, Yeah. And finding that their solution doesn't get down to the depth that actually brings resolution um, for themselves. So that's really, really important. Um, yeah, absolutely. Well, I think it's really important to say in that that because of, you know, particularly in the shift that we need to make culturally, the equation with of most of those conversations really risk reifying the connection between money and basically goodness of life, right? That. And, and that's something that's really, you know, problematic. It's not that we want to get totally get rid of that, right? Because obviously money does matter. And obviously some people have more access to more of it. Um, but at the same time, the conversation tends to be totally about not totally, but quite a lot about status and economics. And um, to the point where it really seems to embrace completely the um, value system uh, that's creating all this injustice sometimes. And I don't know always quite how to get out of that and that's these are the really difficult knots because you don't want to just reject the idea that inequalities and opportunities to make money 
matter. It matters hugely. It's just kind of not the only thing. And then there isn't really a solution. It's just sensing into the heaviness of the language and, you know, kind of suggesting to a person that maybe their perspective comes from privilege rather than telling them, you know, affirmatively that it does or suggesting to a person that their life might be easier uh, instead of telling them affirmatively that it is would make, you know, in many cases, just all the difference, right? It's really, it's really about tone, like relationship, you know, coaches and psychologists worldwide will tell you that, you know, like the chances of success are basically, it's about tone of voice, you know, that's the biggest indicator. And yeah, I mean, if you look at our society, you know, you look at the tone of voice and in the political discourse, then, you know, you kind of can get a, a sense of where, where the issues are coming from. It's just, you know, it's the, the, tone, the tones of voice are not the tones of voice that um, you approach a problem that you really want to solve with, you know, really, you know, if you if you've, you're really deeply connected and it needs to work, then, then, you know, there's another kind of tone of voice, which is a lot more measured. Yeah, I feel that somehow bringing it very much back to yourself and your, the approach that you've been taking with this is somehow beyond all of the content and the critique is the the embodiment of the approach to it um which seems conciliatory um and yeah so very much touching on what this whole podcast has been about for me and just discovering the potential of conversation um since you know these these disembodied idea wars are occurring on disembodied mediums of communication um something quite important about getting back to this because this is where not knowing and um nuance and multidimensionality can come back in because that's how we experience our bodies. Yeah. You know, to be in touch with intuition and the feminine, I think it's, it's, it's more of a sensing into and around rather than a sort of firmly um, supposed form or idea or um, any of that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And that's it. I mean, that's kind of, and that's, I mean, I think really the main point of that book is that, you know, of course it sounds a bit hypocritical, but that the main thing we need is not more books, but just 
like more practice, but practice that focuses on these actual real issues. Like it, all the stuff that people have been writing Zizek and Derrida and, you know, about ideology that we're drowning in it. You know, I mean, I loved it. You know, it's true. Like Zizek's thing, the most ideological statement that you can make is that we have no ideology, right? Um, but the way to do something about that is on every level sort of cultivating just a sense of what it's like to be determined by ideology. Um, and I think the, this, I, this is my real hope with, the, with this kind of, all of the arguments around social justice and, and you know, wokeness or whatever you, you'd like to, to call it, you know, um, that at the end of the day, you know, people are gonna realize that those ideas are really valuable. At the same time, it's the practice of holding them in a, a way that's just useful for everybody. Um, that's just a practice, right? It's like how you hold these kinds of ideas, you know, not getting rid of them, but just holding them in a way that really is impactful in a good way uh, for everybody. Uh, and, and more so than they're wrong, they're right. It's just, yeah, no, equalities, you know, these surface qualities are, are great, you know, it's, there's nothing wrong with these metrics that I, you know, I was talking nothing they're really useful um it's just how do you engage in lots of psychological violence uh while trying to use them to move us towards a different society or or are they a way of challenging people's awareness you know if you think about it would this world look like that if you really saw everybody's equal value and and not really you know that's like and you don't have to back down if they say oh yeah no wait, really you know <laughs> i mean there's a ways of saying like look i don't believe that i don't believe you that that you know that i don't believe that you know you don't have a single you know, non-white employee in your entire company yet, um, you know, just by accident or, you know, because, and, and that you really are valuing everybody's chances equally. Uh, you know, I mean, it's always just, to me, it's like finding the way to look, be in touch with those ideas, but also the equal humanity of the person that you're criticizing, right? Like Django Unchained is some, you know, a, something that I talk about in the book, right? Like that's precisely like, you know, there's this contradiction. We all want to be equals, but nobody wants to be average. We all want to stand out in every way possible, including morally, which means standing for equality more than the next person does, right? And, and then you get this heavy measurement. This, oh, it's, we just have to hate the racists to the point where then you make kind of movies about killing racists, right? You know, like Django Unchained and, and kind of have like the, the audience getting up and whooping and it's this cheapest kind of moral thrill to kind of, you know, hate 
dead people uh, and get on the side of Django, you know? Um, you know, it's like something. Of course, those practices were awful and totally inhuman, but Pliny's cheering for the death of a slave master isn't really like putting you in touch with the kind of morality that, or me in touch with the kind of morality that I personally need to stand for a better world, right? And and though that kind of movement of the dehumanizing the dehumanizer. Um, I mean, no wisdom tradition in the world has ever advocated that. That's the major ones, really. Um, you know. Um, okay, maybe maybe one or two. Certainly not Christianity. Certainly not Buddhism. Certainly not what most of us, you know, believe in. Certainly not our own moral codes. Um, you know, we can argue about you know some you know some sub you know sub traditions, but. Most of the world's wisdom traditions, it's not, you know, um, it's not, it's not advised, you know, and for good reason. I think, you know, we've, we're really, it's not really asking ourselves the right questions there. I feel like we could just continue tunneling down this and it would take us back out and back in and back out. Um, <laughs> endless traverse of the of the current moment, um, but I feel like you know sometimes that it's ra rather than radicalism being changing somebody else's thought, um, rather to ch change their experience mm. and to be able to sit across someone and just you know be in silence together and be in not knowing together and realize how uncomfortable <laughs> that is when you're starting out. Um, that's a, a relationship that's neglected. Um, and yeah, this, I'm really thankful for this conversation <laughs> and mm, interested to see where you're going forward at this interesting in these these many intersections and um you know i hope that the dharma sword can be <laughs> brought to bear on cultural illusion even more forthrightly um and yeah being very compassionate seems to be a helpful orientation towards all the blind spots, um, both personally and collectively. So it's the only one place to start, right? I mean, if you can't be compassionate towards yourself, first of all, you can't be compassionate really towards other people. So, I mean, it's sort of, yeah, that's, uh, that's the first challenge really, I think is compassion or at least in this, you know, with regard to what we've been speaking about. That's a great place to end. Thank you. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs>